chapter we have just heard answers the question that ends the immediately preceding chapter. Who is able to stand? Chapter 6 has described the lamb opening six of seven seals. When he opens these seals, terrifying events are unleashed which threaten the earth and its inhabitants. These events signal the lamb's judgment on sin. By the time the sixth seal is opened, near the end of chapter 6, the kings of the earth and the great and rich and powerful, the purveyors of sin, are hiding in caves, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Chapter 7 tells us who is able to stand. The chapter opens with John saying that after this, he saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the earth's four winds. And then an angel who has ascended from the rising of the sun shouts with a great voice, don't damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the slaves of our God with a seal on their forehead. In chapter 7, we are given a breather from the horrors of judgment on sin. We are taken to another place, to a place where people are not cowering in caves. In chapter 7, John describes two groups of people who are in vastly different circumstances relative to divine wrath than the ones cowering in the caves. First, John hears about a group of people that is protected from the wrath of God and the Lamb by being sealed, like a slave is sealed, tattooed on the forehead. These protected people are identified as belonging to God. By belonging to God, they are guaranteed that they will withstand the coming wrath. These people are from every tribe of the Israelites. Many interpreters of this passage, going back to origin, think that John is here identifying the church on earth with Israel. And I think that this is right, although I don't think that this carries with it the later idea of supersessionism, the church as an entity distinct from Israel and replacing Israel in God's purposes. For John, God works only in and through Israel, the 144,000 protected ones from the tribes of Israel are not the church replacing Israel, they are Israel. Like God has always done, God protects the faithful from God's people. What John hears about the 144,000 answers the terrified question from the rich and powerful of the earth. Those who are able to stand are the ones God marks as God's own from among God's people. We will meet these 144,000 again. In chapter 14, John doesn't just hear about the 144,000, he sees them. He sees them on Mount Zion, standing with the Lamb. Now they have the name of the Lamb and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And they are singing a new song before the throne a song that only they could learn. 
144,000 have now been, as John writes, ransomed from the earth. Back to chapter 7, where John sees a second group of people, a group that is comprised of Jews, along with people from every nation, people, and language. And unlike the first group, it is so numerous that, as John writes, no one could count. These people are standing before the throne and the Lamb. They're robed in white, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a single voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. We find out that these worshipers of God and the Lamb have come through what is ahead for the 144,000, the great ordeal, the great tribulation. The life of those who have come through the great ordeal, now standing around God and the Lamb, is now free from pain and sorrow. They live now standing and worshiping, waving palm branches, symbols of joy and victory, in front of God and the Lamb, to whom alone salvation belongs. Throughout Revelation, John gives us several vivid visions of worship in heaven. The vision from chapter 7 is one of his most beautiful and vigorous and potent perhaps because it is a direct answer to the question of the cowering powerful who is able to stand. The answer is these innumerable people from every nation, tribe, peoples, and language, these people who have come through the great tribulation and who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, these people can stand. These people can stand because, unlike the great ones of the earth, they are not the objects of divine wrath. No, these people have put their hands in the Lamb's blood, the Lamb's blood that was also their blood. These people whose death, as the commentary Eugene, commentator Eugene Boring puts it, whose death became one with the Lamb's death. These people are standing. They are standing have it ma having made it through the great ordeal, made it through by sharing in the Lamb's death. The blood of the martyrs is also the Lamb's blood, and the Lamb's blood is also the martyr's blood. John puts it this way in chapter 12. They have conquered the great dragon, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. To the powerful people quaking in the caves, God and the Lamb are full of wrath. But the faithful martyrs adore God and the Lamb. The martyrs know that salvation belongs only to the one on the throne and the lamb at the center of that throne. The ordeal that the faithful martyrs have come through has not made them bitter, it has made them grateful, eternally and profoundly grateful that they can stand in the presence of God and the lamb, eternally and profoundly grateful that they see that the lamb 
is at the center of the throne. At the center of God's being is the Lamb's sacrifice. The ordeal they have come through has opened these martyrs' eyes to the wondrous pain at the center of God. God's astonishing sacrificial love. A love of immeasurable cost to God and the Lamb. So the martyr's greatest joy is to stand and worship God and the Lamb day and night. They know that God's throne, unlike the throne of the great ones of the earth, does not demand blood. It gives blood. God's throne gives blood, the blood of the Lamb, the life blood of God. Salvation belongs only to God and the Lamb. Before heading into chapter 8, in which we will witness the opening of the seventh and most terrifying seal, chapter 7 is a reprieve. It offers comfort, assurance of salvation. For John's original context, where testifying to faith in God and the Lamb was life-threatening, John's vision of the protected 144,000 and the saved martyrs in heaven offered encouragement to keep the faith. John puts it this way in chapter 14. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. As scripture, John's vision is also a call to us, a call that is both reassuring a reassuring encouragement to keep the faith and a sober and serious word to us. That serious word is that deliverance from the wrath of God and the Lamb is not in our power. Even if we live faithful and good lives, even if we lay down our lives for God, Paul's words come to mind, though I give my body to be burned. It is only if God marks us as God's own, and only if we mix our blood with the Lamb's blood, that we are saved from God's anger against sin. Life with God is God's to offer, not ours to earn. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. The joy of the worshipers in white robes is the joy of having given their lives entirely into God's hands. Even their deaths are not for God, but with God. For it is the Lamb's blood, not their own, that allows them to stand and worship. Our task, as was that of the faithful in John's time, is to endure to keep the faith in word and deed, to be assured and to act from the knowledge that God and the Lamb at God's heart are stronger than every ruler and power and the evils of sin that reign inside and outside of us, and to keep our faith with profound humility, knowing that our performance in word and deed is not what saves us, but that we will stand because salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb.